Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. Ever since the 2016 primaries, I've heard a similar refrain from well-meaning Republicans. Donald Trump has hijacked the party and abandoned its core principles. This just never landed right with me. Sure, Trump, the politician, is an outlier in some respects. Even so, his victory doesn't feel like an accident, but rather the crest of a wave that has been building within the GOP for decades. This week, I speak with author and political consultant Stuart Stevens, whose brand new book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump, explains exactly how the GOP and Trump came to represent each other so completely. Stewart has been an advisor to Republican candidates since the 1980s, culminating with him leading Mitt Romney's presidential campaign in 2012, and his view from the inside about what he and others got wrong is honest and refreshing. Stewart and I discuss when it all veered off course for the GOP. Hint, 1964, the white grievance side won and why the future of America will be decided by the battles currently playing out within the Democratic Party. Finally, we turn to the 2020 election. Now, sometimes the historical moment picks the right leader for that time, as may be happening now with Joe Biden. Stewart is one of the most thoughtful and creative folks I know in politics, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Let's get into it. Stuart Stevens, welcome to The Politics of Truth. Great to be here, man. It's a real honor. It's an honor to have you here. Uh, I want to get into your new book here in a minute. It was all a lie how the Republican Party became Donald Trump. But when I look at the political world, to me, it's a lot like the music business. You got the bands, you got the guys on stage, but then you've got the manager, you've got the tour manager, you got the booking agent. It's just all these people behind the scenes that make it happen. So I'm really curious, like you were one of the most successful Republican political consultants of your generation. So I'm curious to ask you, what is the relationship like between the political consultant and the politician? You know, it's really changed, I found, both as a result, I think, of getting older and also the way the industry changed. You know, when I came up, my niche was making commercials. You know, I was a guy who was always interested in politics, film, and writing. And I got drawn into making television commercials when a guy who'd been chief of staff in an office where I'd been a page was running for Congress. He couldn't afford to hire anybody. I was at UCLA Film School. said, like, can you make commercials for me? I said, like, I don't know how to make commercials. I just make these stupid little films. But I did, and he won, not because of anything I did. It was just the right guy at the right time. And I found out people would pay me money to make commercials for them. So I could do it kind of like migrant labor work when no one would pay me to write. And then I just continued it. So in those days, and this is going way back to like, you know, 1980, in the business, there were what were called general consultants. So these are the guys like Paul Begala, James Carville, uh, Lee Atwater, uh, Rich Bond was another one. And they were guys who really ran campaigns and 
were strategists and sort of the, the hub of the spokes of the wheels of different elements of the campaign. So I, I did a lot of work then actually for this firm called Black Manafort and Stone, which is now, you know, Roger Stone uh, and Paul Manafort. They really wanted to be lobbyists and they hit upon the idea that they could elect people and then lobby them. And they really, they would go out and get campaigns I never could have gotten. They didn't really want to do the campaigns. They would dish them to me. And I was always like very grateful. They would pay me what seemed like a lot of money. It's probably like a thousand dollars a month or something. So uh, my relationship then with candidates was really not a lot of close personal contact. I would come in, I would make commercials. I had a very specific role. You know, we'd hang out on the shoots, but I really wasn't involved that much in the strategy and the planning of the campaign. I was more like a direct mail vendor, like, here, go do this product. What happened in the business is that that role of general consultant sort of died away, like most industries, because of financial changes. So people who do media consulting, what I do, essentially like advertising agencies, there was a fee structure that was based upon a percentage of the dollars spent on media, mainly television. And that's how advertising agencies get paid. You know, you go to an advertising agency, they'll make ads for you. Ostensibly, uh, they'll place those ads for you and they get a discount from the television station. That's how they make their money, blah, blah. So uh, as people spent more and more money on campaigns in media, that became a larger percentage of money. So if you were a general consultant, there was really a limit to how much money you could charge without looking like a total, like, you know, oinker. Uh, plus, there's a limit to the number of campaigns you could work on, maybe a few. So what happened was a lot of people who would have been general consultants started calling themselves media consultants so that they could make commercials and get paid on a revenue stream that came from dollars spent on television. So I ended up sort of doing more and more strategy. I sort of really became a, a, a strategist. It was also interested in me. And as I did it more, I felt more comfortable with it. And uh, that whole definition of what it was to be a media consultant really changed. You know, when I started out, these candidates were older than me. And then I reached a point where, you know, I was peers with them. Now I really don't do it much, but you know, a lot of them are younger than I am. And that relationship really evolved. So like when I did the George Bush campaign, I moved down to Austin in 99. And I spent a lot of time within Governor Bush. Um, we would go out to his ranch, and this was before he built his house at his ranch. And he was big into running then, before he got into mountain biking. And we would run a lot, and we'd spend time together. But I really wouldn't have considered myself a close friend of his at all. I worked with a guy named Mark McKinnon, who lived in Austin. And Mark had daughters the same age as Governor Bush. They had met each other through a project to help a school. Mark and, and Governor Bush were really friends. You know, I had a good relationship with Governor Bush. We we're very friendly. You know, he's an impossible guy not to like. But we, we didn't really hang out together. Uh, we would do stuff together. Later, when I ended up working on Mitt Romney's campaign, he and I really became friends. We spent a lot of time together. I spent more time with him than I spent with Governor Bush. He's a tremendous reader and loves books. You know, it's funny, I look back on that campaign, you know, you spend all the time going around to events, doing this. I mean, the last time we think we would get on a plane is want to talk about politics. So, you know, we would usually talk about books we were reading. and It was a great relief. So uh, it's really changed, I would say. 
my relationships now with clients tend to be more peers. I've always worked for people I like. And my complaint now with the Republican Party is really more of a global complaint than an individual, like blame this person or blame that person. And one of the things I wanted to make clear in this book was that this isn't a naming of names. Look at what this terrible person did. Look at that. Because I hate books like that. And I say in the preface, if that this isn't that book, and you shouldn't read it if what you're looking for. It's more about a collective thing. And I see myself as being responsible. I don't blame these other people. But, you know, um, the one constant of being a candidate is that you're under stress. And the higher you go in that business, the greater the stress is. And I think a lot of the role that you begin to play is to appreciate that stress that they're under and to try to help them deal with that stress in various ways. Sometimes that can be like before a debate, getting somebody to laugh, you know? When things are really bad, and a lot of moments are really bad in campaigns, just, you know, trying to to keep perspective on it. And I, I think candidates have this problem of who do they talk to? Who do they unload this on? I've never worked for anybody who was one of these candidates, male or female, who would like blame staff and yell at staff, you know. I've always worked for people who tended to blame themselves first and internalize stress. But, you know, you say you're traveling with a spouse, male or female, it's a lot of stress on them. So if you're a candidate, you really don't want to be trying to unload all that stress on, on your spouse. And I think sometimes it's a lot harder to be a spouse than a candidate because you want to defend this person. So I think one of the most productive roles you can play is just having a relationship where someone can talk to you about anything. Maybe sometimes it's just venting that happens, you know, and that venting can be, you know, particularly in presidential races, you start flying around, there's all kinds of logistical problems, you know, planes break, things break, you never get enough sleep. That's sort of your your role. Um, probably it's like being a, a coach in a certain way. I, I like that part of it. But I liked people for the most part. Some I liked more than others. You always do. I have to ask you about Senator Romney. In the aftermath of, of 2012 or getting into 2016 to today, there was that, that documentary, Mitt, that came out that revealed more of the man. Uh, we've seen his behavior as of late, be it attending a Black Lives Matter rally in Washington, D.C., or voting for impeachment in the Senate trial that happened early this year. People are like, you know, is that the Mitt you always knew? Is that the guy you knew and we're just seeing now? You know, I think it's probably a constant in a campaign that if you work with someone, I suspect that everyone who works for candidate thinks that that candidate is not being seen by the public in their entirety. I mean, I'm sure if you work for John Kerry, you felt like we're not able to, to show the whole person. Campaigns are kind of kabuki plays. So I don't think that's unusual. You know, Mitt is a very interesting guy because at every point in his life, people who have worked with him considered it a tremendous experience. And I think that's just very telling, you know. I mean, going back to people who knew him in high school, he's still friends with them. People that he knew uh, in college, people that he worked with in the Olympics, it was the greatest experience that they ever had, you know. You know, he started this company, Bain. They're mostly Massachusetts Democrats, Right. Didn't Deval Patrick work for them as well? He does now. He works for that company now. He didn't when, when, when Mitt was there. But at the same time, Mitt comes from a, a tradition that is in part, I think, well, may a large degree based in their faith, that 
there are a lot of things he doesn't like to talk about. You can't throw a rock in Boston and not hit some charity that he hasn't participated in. And you can't find his name on anything. And, you know, in the campaign, as I got to know him, and got, I kept coming across these people like the Romneys are putting me through college, you know. And it's like, well, no, I didn't know that. And there were all these stories of these people. And, you know, he gave tremendous amount of his uh, fortune, and he made a fortune to charity. But he never was comfortable talking about it. Just as in many ways, he was never comfortable really talking about how successful he was financially. So, you know, sometimes we'd say to him, other people would say to him, look, it's great that you're successful. We want everybody to be successful. You should just go out and say that, and you should say that that's uh, a positive. And he, he thought it was. But at the same time, he said, so let me get this straight. So you're saying that because I made a lot of money, I could be a better president? I'm a better person? Like, really? You're saying that? Because that's not true. I was just lucky. And I'm not going to go out and tell people that that's proof that I'm a better person. And the same with charity. He says, I, the whole idea of charity is to do it not so that you can say you've done it. I mean, that would defeat the whole purpose of this. And it was always a tension within him. You know, he, he never was comfortable about um, opening up to that side of himself. How close did he come to running in 2016, to your knowledge? I think he came pretty close. And I think, and this is just a guess, I've never asked him this, but I suspect that had he known that none of the other candidates would be successful in taking down Donald Trump, he would have run. Because I can't tell you that Mitt would have won that race, but I can tell you he would have taken Donald Trump out because he would have called him out for what he was. You know, that whole dynamic of that primary, there's 16 candidates, right? And I understand this how these people who were involved in those other campaigns thought, and I'm not saying I wouldn't have thought the same thing. And it was, all I have to do is be left standing running against Donald Trump because the Republican Party's not going to nominate this guy who is in the casino business and talks in public about having sex with his daughter. I mean, the Republican Party's not going to do that. So my mission is to just kill these other people. So that wasn't crazy. It was just wrong. So if you go back to that, like first debate where he was standing next to Jeb Bush and Jeb was there because Jeb was still a front runner, whatever first question came to Jeb Bush, if Jeb Bush had said, look, I'll answer that question. But first, you know, turn it on to Donald, you insulted my wife. And I want to know right here, right now, will you apologize? And Trump would said, no, no, no. And he said, I would thought you wouldn't because that's the kind of person you are. You're not fit to be on the stage. You're not fit to be running for president. And most of all, you're not fit to be president. Now, okay, I'll answer this question. And then answer the question. Trump's head would have exploded. If the first time in that debate a question came to Ted Cruz, Ted said, look, I'll answer that question, but let me just say something. You may not like me. You may love me. But I am a conservative. And Donald Trump is not a conservative. I mean, this is a guy who's a maxed out donor to Anthony Weiner. He has been a Democrat most of his life. Vote for him for a lot of other reasons, but don't vote for him thinking he's a conservative. Okay, I'll answer the question. And had they continued like that, Trump never would have gotten off the ground. Because, you know, people forget when Trump first entered that race, he was not very popular with Republicans. You know, he lost the first primary to in Iowa, the first caucus to Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. But they didn't do that. They didn't do it because they didn't think they had to, I think. I think there was a sense, you know, Trump was still talking about running as an independent. So there was some sense that we don't want to, like, alienate his voters. I think some of them were intimidated by Trump. 
running for president is one of these things that you get better at. And, you know, Mitt had run twice and he debated Barack Obama. He played the game at the highest level. If he'd been on stage with Donald Trump, it would have been like, okay, you know, I'm going to kick your ass. And he would have, because he would have seen it as a moral obligation to do it. This gets to the point of your book. Your premise is that it was not a hostile takeover of the Republican Party by Donald Trump. The Republican Party became Donald Trump. And if we think about Mitt Romney and his father, George Romney, it kind of began during at a point where George Romney could have become the nominee at some point. So there, there's a connection here. This is all a connection. So what I love about your book, being a history guy, is you you give the documents. Like You're like, okay, well, this is where this started. This is where the Republican Party made this turn. So talk about 1964 and Barry Goldwater and why that is a moment that we are still living. One of the things I really enjoyed about writing this book was it was a good excuse to go back and read a lot of stuff I wanted to read. And, you know, Republican Party is not an obscure subject, so there's a lot of really good books about it. And I had forgotten, I guess I knew this, but I'd forgotten that in 1956, Eisenhower got almost 40% of the African-American vote. Nixon got like 33%. So then you get to 64 with Goldwater. Goldwater's against the Civil Rights Act. It falls off the cliff to 7%. Now, you could have made uh, a case that wouldn't have seemed crazy to me anyway, that after the Civil Rights Bill passed, that African-Americans in some large numbers would come back to the Republican Party, that there would be a commonality of uh, interest, say, deep set focus on the family, the role of faith in the public square, uh, and entrepreneurship. This would have attracted a substantial number of African-Americans back to the Republican Party. Only it never happened. And to this day, we're still living through that. So there was a famous Time magazine cover after the 64 massacre of what is the future of the, of the Republican Party? So uh, George Romney was on that cover. Ronald Reagan was on that cover. A couple of other governors. And there was speculation that after the Goldwater debacle, this is the future of the party. This is sort of a big tent party. So Reagan won. But Reagan was able to put together these various parts of the coalition. And we forget, you know, like most of us, Ronald Reagan was a very contradictory figure. On the one hand, you know, he did announce in front of the Statue of Liberty. He signed a bill that made everyone who'd been in the country before 1983 legal. His last speech, which you really should go back and read, he gave as president, is this beautiful homage to immigration. I mean, I choke up when I read this thing. Now, he played to racial tensions. I had always sort of not wanted to come to grips with that as much because I was drawn to Reagan. But that tension within the party, you go back to the 50s, it was Eisenhower and Joe McCarthy, and it played itself out. There's a memo that I talk about in the book that was written by Pat Buchanan and Kevin Phillips uh, for Nixon's re-election called Dividing the Democrats. And you know their premise was whether or not it's fair or not, we're not going to get many African-Americans to vote for us. And all their efforts that we try to attract African-Americans just haven't worked. So let's face reality. What we need to do is reduce the impact of African-American voters to total electorate. So how do we do that? We want to stir up dissension within the Democratic Party so that African-Americans are angry at the Democratic Party. 
And to the degree that we can promote third-party candidacies, we want to do that. And the degree that we can just discourage African-Americans from voting because whatever they vote, it's not going to change the system. We want to do that, too. And what's fascinating, I mean, that became the blueprint for the so-called Southern strategy. And what's just mind-boggling about it, Bob, is you look at it, it's exactly what the Russians did in 2016. I mean, they came and they, they, they yeah, I mean, you guys are not dumb. They go, well, look, you know, like this worked. We'll do it. Yeah, it's really interesting. That document, the Pat Buchanan, Kevin Phillips document, is like a, a centerpiece of your book. You really interact with it throughout the book. You know, one of the things that stood out to me is that is like this is the Russian playbook for 2016, 2020. Also, either Kevin Phillips or Pat Buchanan love to use the word methinks, which is also kind of interesting. Yes. You know, Pat Buchanan is still with us. And I've never known anybody who encountered Pat Buchanan who didn't enjoy it. He has a great sense of humor, and I think he's very self-aware. I mean, I think it's hard-pressed to find somebody that had more fun running for president than Pat Buchanan did. He knew he wasn't going to win. He's a dark force, but an incredibly entertaining and sort of brilliant force. And you can make a good case that basically the Trump presidency is the triumph of the Pat Buchanan for president campaign that most of the ideas that, that Trump champions are, are ideas that Buchanan first really brought forth. A lot of the anti-immigrant stuff, a lot of the, the sort of nativism, the isolationism. Those of us who worked for Bush in 99, 2000, Bush called compassionate conservative. And he got a lot of grief from people on the right because they said, well, look, does that mean that you think conservatism hasn't been compassionate? And Bush's answer to that was basically, yeah, that's what I think. So it was kind of time to come up with a new agenda of what conservatism was. So for Bush, the focal point of that was definitely education. It's what he cared about the most. He knew a lot about education. He felt very passionately about it. And if you go back and you look at what was the first piece of significant legislation he passed, it was uh, No Child Left Behind. And if you look at that signing of it, he's there signing it in the Oval Office, on his right shoulder is Ted Kennedy, which today in the Republican Party, that'd be presented like a document at a war crimes tribunal. Like, here you are with Ted Kennedy. So do you feel like 9-11 robbed George W. Bush of, of presenting a, a new Republican Party uh, in terms of race? Yeah, there's a little parlor game that a lot of us play inside the Bush world. of What would Bush presidency have been like if he hadn't become a wartime president. And I think it's the best chance that we had, maybe the last best chance, to coin that phrase, to redefine what conservatism could have been to appeal to a larger non-white group of Americans. It didn't happen because of 9-11. Now, Iraq, obviously, is one of the great debacles in American history. But you look back at that, you still could see inside Bush, this humanity that he has. You know, he didn't demonize Muslims. And you can imagine what Donald Trump would have done in that moment. I mean, he banned Muslims, called for banning Muslims in his campaign uh, in 2015. He was able to put together a coalition. Trump never could have done that. It really is just a tragedy of lost opportunity, I think, as war often is. And I, I think now it's clear that the dark side won, what I would consider the dark side. You know, the, the side of the party that was a white grievance side. And 
you know, what appealed to me most about this was I thought there was a agreement of a set of principles. So what were they? Personal responsibility. I mean, Republicans, unfairly, but used to always mock Democrats for being, you know, the victim party. Character counts, strong on Russia, the deficit matters, free trade, pro-legal immigration. And it's not that the party has drifted away from those things now, the way parties sometimes do. It's like we're actively against all those things now. So if you go back and you read all that stuff that was written, like by William Bennett in the 90s, about late 90s, about Bill Clinton, you know, Book of Virtue, um, about how character defines the nation and how all of this. And now you read it with Trump and it's like, well, that, well, that didn't really mean anything. You know, it only meant when it meant something about Bill Clinton. I mean, Trump is the greatest victim that there is. I mean, to be born in America when Ronald Reagan was president, there was an assumption you had won life's lottery. You're the luckiest person on earth. To be an American under Trump is you're, you're a victim. You're a sucker. There are these powerful forces out there in the world like Canada that <laughs> are taking advantage of it. Uh, it's a complete redefinition of what it is to be an American. So you're part of the Lincoln Project. Yep. Um, I have to ask you, did you write the spot that came out the other day, Waking Up? You know, first, I just joined this thing. I didn't create it. And I'm very much like a, a backup singer, rhythm guitarist in this. But it's one of these things that has very good dynamic with no egos. And no one is claiming credit for anything. It's just a group effort. And everything is a group effort. So we, we haven't gotten into, you know, trying to say who did this, who did that. A lot of stuff is, is a group effort. But really, you know, the, the, the people who started that, John Weaver, it was really John Weaver's conception. Um, Steve Schmidt. And John Weaver worked with John Kasich. He worked with John Kasich and he worked with John McCain. Rick Wilson, Jennifer Horn from New Hampshire, Mike Madrid from California, uh, George Conway. A lot of these people I knew. I didn't know George just because our worlds didn't interact. They deserve all the credit here. I was working on the weld effort to primary Donald Trump. So I didn't join when they started up, and then I joined after that. Is there anything you learned on that Weld campaign that gave you hope, or were there any areas where he did well? Yeah, you know, even after he had withdrawn, he was still getting like 10% in these very late primaries in Maryland. I think that, you know, I did Weld's first race when he ran for governor in 1990 in Massachusetts. And people forget because we've now elected a series of Republican governors, Weld, Romney, Charlie Baker. When he ran in 1990, they hadn't elected a Republican governor over 20 years in Massachusetts. It was considered hopeless. And he won an extraordinary campaign. A lot of things had to go right for him to win. And then he was a really good governor. And then he was reelected with the largest margin ever to this day. So I love the guy. And I think that he has a very good sense of self. So I think he went into this very realistically. He went into it because he thought that somebody should run against Donald Trump. And if not me, who? You know, there's some fights you have because you think it's worth having a fight, not because you think you're going to win. So that, that was really what this was about, I think, to, to give people who thought that there was a different kind of party or a vehicle. But look, you know, Donald Trump says he has 95% favorability with the Republican Party. Like most things with Trump, that's an exaggeration. Probably it's 88, 89%. Look, a lot of people were wrong about Trump in 2016, but it's hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. I didn't think he'd win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the general. And I realized in retrospect, if I'm honest with myself, it was because I didn't want to believe he could win. 
I didn't want to believe what this said about this party that I had worked for. And then I went through this stage of, well, Donald Trump isn't really the Republican Party. You know, he's just hijacked the party. And then it's like, well, that's not really honest. I mean, how do you say that? He's wildly popular in the party. I mean, the Republican Party is the party that enjoys Tory more. That is the party. So then that sort of set me on this path of sort of examining how did this happen. There was always these tensions. And what we thought was a recessive gene turned out to be the dominant gene. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really telling, there are these Republican governors in blue states that are wildly popular, right? Larry Hogan, Maryland, here in Vermont, Phil Scott, uh, Charlie Baker, Massachusetts. I work for all these guys. I love these guys. They can't pick their own state party chairman. They're, they're Trump people. And that used to be, I mean, the idea that a governor couldn't pick their state party chairman, I mean, that's just, that, that would be like saying Bill Belichick couldn't decide who started. I mean, it's like unimaginable. But they can't. And I think it just shows how deeply Trumpism has become embedded in the party. And I think if Trump loses, this isn't going to go away. Hey, everybody. I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market, and I finally found the best one for me, and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. It does seem that Trumpism is not going away. We think that you slay the dragon, you know, you get rid of Donald Trump, so to speak, uh, by voting him out of office in a fair election, and that kills Trumpism. But what happens to the Lincoln Project Republicans, and I'm going to throw Larry Hogan in there, and your governor there in Vermont, and Charlie Baker, and there's a few other around the country who haven't gotten the Trump stink on them. Right. The whole key is you're Republican, but can you avoid getting the stink on you? Because once you get it on you, you can't get it off. It doesn't come off. So what do you see happening in 2020? Are we going to a three party thing here where you have a real conservative party, you have a Trumpist party and you have a liberal party? I think the Republican Party, if you look at what happened to it in California, it went California was a beating heart and soul of the Republican Party. It was an electoral fortress. Now the Republican Party's in third place. Not second place, third place. Democrats, independents, what they call no party preference, and Republicans. I think that's the future of the Republican Party. It's sort of like the subprime mortgage crisis. It's a lot easier to predict how it ends and how long it takes. But, you know, I came across a statistic the other day that, like, absolutely blew my mind. Of those who are 15 years old and younger in America, the majority are non-white. So the odds are looking really good they're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. And what that's going to mean for our politics, it's, it's just going to transform everything. Unless the Republican Party changes, and the Republican Party gives no desire to even want to change. So I think what's going to happen is 
the Republican Party will become increasingly irrelevant. So when you go to your three-party structure, that third party, such as it is, is going to be the debate within the Democratic Party and the two wings of the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. So take an issue like national health insurance. In 20 years, is America going to be the only Western democracy without national health plan? No, we're going to have it. So what that's going to be, I think, is going to be decided within the Democratic Party. Republicans can't even come up with a plan. And all they're going to do is just say no. So whether or not it's going to be single payer with insurance, single payer, all that's going to be decided in the Democratic Party. So to me, the debate between, is it the you know, AOC, call it, Bernie Sanders wing of the party, or more of a Joe Biden wing of the party, that's really where the future of America is going to be decided. So you know, I have a lot of friends, a lot of people I respect that Republicans say they can't vote for Trump, but they can't vote for Biden. They're not going to vote for Democrats. I'm just not there. I'm going to vote for Democrats because I just think we're in this two-party system. It's not going to change for a lot of reasons we could talk for days about. Sure. And, I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution about parties at all, but we have this system. But the likelihood of it changing is not great. So I think the real debate and discussion of consequence will be within the Democratic Party. Republicans will still win. Uh, in some places, they'll become more of a Sunbelt party, uh, more of a Southern party. But I don't see much of a future. I mean, they say demographics aren't destiny, but they are if you don't change. But you do point out in your book that you think, given all we know about Donald Trump that we didn't know in 2016, that we know in 2020, he's the incumbent now. He's not the outsider any longer. The businessman who can fix, who can fix it, who alone can fix it. You still say he could win. You know, starting in 1976, after post-Watergate, we instituted campaign finance reform. And a lot of people don't focus on this because you have a life, you know, working campaigns. God love you. And I wish I was one of you. But <laughs> that meant that each nominee of the party received the exact same amount of money for their campaign in the fall. And as part of that, you agreed not to raise more money or spend more money. So that was around $80 million. You literally got it. Once you gave your acceptance speech and you walked off stage, there was someone there from the Treasury Department that had a check. It was like sweepstakes. We were always like, can't you wire this money? And they go, no, we do checks. So uh, that continued to 2008. And Barack Obama realized that he could raise a fortune, particularly on the net. So he opted out of that system. He ended up raising $735 million. And history of campaign finance reform is once somebody opts out, it's very difficult to get it back in. So 2012 was the first time that we had an election in which both the incumbent and the challenger were not in the federal funding system. The incumbent won. Now we're in that same system. Trump and Biden, they're both not in the federal funding system. Neither one are taking. They can raise unlimited money. So it's not an illogical question to ask yourself, when is the last time an incumbent lost that was not in the federal funding system? Because when we had the federal funding system, Carter lost and Bush lost because it did level the playing field. So the answer to that is Herbert Hoover. He was the last one who lost. And he had sort of a bad year. You know, you could argue Trump is having a bad year. But yes. there are such incredible advantages to being an incumbent in our system. So right now, if I had to guess, I would give Trump around a 20% chance. They say, well, that means 80% chance he's going to lose. Now, I'm not the biggest basketball uh, stat guy in the world, but I think NBA pros miss like 20% of free throws. That's right. And they miss free throws. Yes, they do. 
um, it, it could happen. You know, one of the things people, all this industry of how did Trump win, Trump voters and everything, sort of lost in this is often, you know, Trump won with 46.1% of the total electorate. Romney lost with 47.2. So on one hand, you could say in a very simplistic way, why did Trump win? He ran because he ran in a year in which he could win with 46.1. Why did that happen? Well, because third party increased and non-white turnout declined for the first time in 20 years. So you take Wisconsin, for example. Romney loses Wisconsin by seven points. It's a lot. Trump wins by just under one. Romney got more votes than Trump. The difference was 50,000 voters who didn't show up in the greater Milwaukee area that would have been predominantly Democratic. Now, a lot of studies have been done about this. One of the key factors definitely was the fact that there's a lot of back and forth, but in the end, legal challenges, there was a new voter ID program that was put in place in Wisconsin. It's not the only reason. I mean, they're logical to think that African-Americans were less excited about voting for Hillary Clinton than re-electing the first African-American president. People thought Clinton was going to win anyway. So I think she left a lot of votes on the table. But what a normal politician would have done is it tried to expand their base. Look, I only wanted 46.1%. I mean, as we say, politics is about addition, ultimately, not subtraction. Trump hasn't done that. And he keeps digging in further. So I think their only hope is to depress through various mechanisms, legal and extra-legal, quasi-legal, non-white vote. Do you think the post office... I think everything is part of it. I think, you know, the battle in Florida, are felons going to have to pay past fines before they can vote? We don't talk about this a lot, but those of us that are really working in this thing pay pretty close attention to this. There's 1.7 million felons in Florida who could vote if it's legal. That's a lot of people. And they're not the easiest group to poll, as you might imagine, but you could say that's 400,000 votes probably for Joe Biden. And Florida's not going to be decided by 400,000 votes. It's going to be a lot tighter. So uh, I think Trump completely misunderstands the moment. I, I look at my home state of Mississippi. We finally took down the Confederate flag, or the Mississippi flag, which was basically the Confederate battle flag, which is a very moving moment, very moving. And, and that same week, Trump is basically trying to raise the Confederate flag over the White House. I think that's a wrong, forgetting any moral, historical, I think it's a wrong political calculation. You take your average teenager, white teenager in Mississippi, their cultural icons are more black rap stars than Robert E. Lee. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're in that same cultural mix that the whole country's in. And they don't want to be seen as racist. And I think it's just, look, you're on the wrong side of a cultural war with NASCAR and you're a Republican. That's like a bad place to be, man. The wrong side of Walmart on mask. So I think Trump is miscalculated. I think there's going to be, look, Biden is going to make mistakes. You know, as I always say, it's impossible to run for president of the United States and not be humiliated. It's how you respond to that humiliation that is the key. Now, I'm very impressed with the Biden campaign people. You know, I, I just know, having been there, that it's hard to describe this, but to start as a front runner and stumble badly, the hydraulic pressure to do something radical to change the candidacy is so great. Now, usually it doesn't work, but you still do it. I mean, you're down 40 to nothing in the third quarter of the Super Bowl. You go like, what the hell? But they stuck with their game plan. And damn if they didn't win. 
and I guess African American voters in South Carolina was a big part of their game plan from the get go. But how important was Jim Clyburn to Joe Biden's nomination? I can't tell you that Bernie Sanders would have lost to Donald Trump, but I can sure tell you Donald Trump wanted to run against Bernie Sanders for a reason. I know some of these people in the Biden campaign, and they're they're very serious human beings. You know, I really respect their discipline. They're not going to be baited into doing stuff that's stupid. Um, I think that they'll weather mistakes well. One of the things I admire about Biden is he's talking about being a transitional figure. And I admire that because he is a transitional figure. Politicians ought to say stuff that fifth graders know is true. But often we try, you know, you don't want to admit it. And I think that's very mature. It obviously places a lot of emphasis on the vice president. How would Stuart Stevens run a campaign in the time of COVID? You know, presidential campaigns, we do spend all this money, all this time, all this God, unbelievable amount of energy running around the country. So in the Romney campaign, I had this sort of basic question, like, do we accomplish anything doing this? So I had pollsters go in and poll before we went into a market, like the week before, while we were in a market, and then three, four, five days afterwards. The results were really depressing. You know, we would go up maybe on average two and a half points while we were in the market. But three days later, it was as if you hadn't gone there. So we looked at this, we analyzed it, and then we decided, well, we didn't know what else to do. People say Hillary Clinton lost Michigan because she didn't go to Michigan. I don't know that she lose Pennsylvania because she went too much. I'm not really sure the cause and effect there. There's a lot of residual things that campaigns have done on a national level, I think, that are legacies of a different era. And I think one of the useful things, and you're going to see this across industries, obviously, you don't have to do things the same way. So what we're seeing, I suspect, is going to be more of a blueprint for what the future is going to be like. People that go to rallies, they're like people that go to a wedding. They're usually not strangers. They're usually people who are going to vote for you anyway. And you spend all this money and all this attention getting these people out. I, I, I think we're in a, a, a new stage of campaigning that makes a lot of sense. Look, in a world in which you can have best friends online that you've never met, you know, why not? have that connection with candidates. And I think you can have a more personal connection. You know, I've been teaching some bass lessons on Zoom and I'm having these connections with fans that we could have never had before that. Right. It's much more intimate. Yeah. Now, I think at the same time, it does play to Joe Biden's advantage. Normally, incumbent president raises a lot of money, even under the old system. And then in a primary, you usually emerge broke because you had a competitive primary. And if an incumbent president didn't have a primary, they don't. In fact, one of the keys whether or not an incumbent president loses is generally whether or not he is primary. But so in this period that we just went through, April, May, June, a little bit of July, that normally is a period in which the incumbent would be using their advantage to pounce on the challenger and try to define them in a negative way. Clinton did it to Dole. Obama spent more money on television in June and July in 2012 than the Bush and Kerry campaign spent together for the entire campaign. Now, did it make a difference? I don't know, man, but being in the Romney campaign, it sure sucks. That didn't happen to the Biden campaign. You know, Trump is yet to articulate an attack against Biden in any sustained way. In fact, they pulled their ads, right? They pulled their ads, the Trump campaign in, in certain markets. It's crazy. I mean, the Biden campaign has passed what would have been their most dangerous and most vulnerable period. 
And look, you know, I look at Joe Biden, who in the past hasn't been very good at running for president. But sometimes we have these moments where you have public figures who seemed to be sort of on history scrappy, who something changes, and all of a sudden they become the right person for the moment. So Churchill, I mean, in 37, 38, he was just kind of bellicose nut that, you know, that all of a sudden he's saving, you know, the empire. Margaret Thatcher, she's always this kind of like not so nice person that, you know, backbencher. Then England got so bad that her sort of tough medicine recipe of improvisation, everything's what they needed. She became the Iron Lady. And it could be that what this country really needs now is what Joe Biden almost uniquely has, and that is a sense of healing and a sense of humanity. The country is experiencing grief on a scale that we haven't felt since World War II. And he is a man who has suffered and endured. We're also at a period in which never has competence been more valued. You know, oddly, the most inexperienced candidate usually wins the presidency. So Joe Biden has been in office since 28. A lot of times that would be a negative. But maybe the idea of having somebody that actually knows how to be president could be appealing. So it could be that what's happening is all of this is coming together and a moment and a man are meeting. So let me ask you this. Let's say you're in the room, you're part of the Biden campaign. Who do you advocate that he picks for vice president? I would pick Kamala Harris. Um, I think you shouldn't pick anyone who hasn't run for president before for a bunch of reasons, one of which they've been vetted more. And there's really something unique about running for president. I think that's only become more so as we've had a sort of golden age of national reporters while local reporters have declined. So your average governor, your average senator, they've never really hit big league pitching when it comes to reporters. You run for president, you hit big league pitching. You know, there's this weird thing, man, that happens in, in presidential campaigns. You have this culture. You've lived together for a year. You've usually been through hard times together. You've won because you're the nominee. It's probably been a near-death experience. It's brought you to, and then you have to bring in this whole other culture. It's called the vice presidential culture. And how these two get along, it's tricky. And it's easy to get a lot of tensions. You have allocation of resources. Like, who gets the nicer plane? who stays in nicer hotels, who has more staff, who answers to whom, who's really running this thing. So usually people who are vice presidents are used to running their own world. All of a sudden, they have a boss, the president. It's a complicated cultural dance. When you have someone who's run for president before, I think if you're sitting there in a presidential campaign, you can look at them and know what you're getting more and make a, a more informed decision. Like, okay, this person... We know who they're close to. So if we get this person, we're going to get this group. So let's decide if we like this group. That's easier when someone's run for president. So I think the entire race comes down to non-white turnout. I mean, I think if we knew today what the percentage of non-white turnout is, we'd know the election. So I can't tell you how much it helps Joe Biden to pick Kamala Harris with non-white turnout. But I fear... And look, I'm wrong all the time, but I fear not picking an African-American when there were qualified African-Americans will mean more than having picked one. So I worry about the inverse. How do you say I was a vice president for the first African-American? I had a chance to pick a qualified African-American. I didn't. I think that could be problematic. Now, I don't know Kamala Harris from Adam. I think Joe Biden will work on the assumption he's going to win. 
and we'll pick someone he really wants to govern with. When Bush was picking his vice president in 2000, uh, we used to go out to Crawford and do debate prep. And this is before he built his house, but we'd stay in these kind of shacks out there. And Bush loved to go running in the hottest part of the day, which is really hot, just to show how tough he was. So he and I, Mark McKinnon, you know Mark, we were running and I wanted to push uh, Governor Tom Ridge of Pennsylvania as vice president. He would have been a great pick, by the way. So I was running along with Bush and I said, so Governor, would it be appropriate if I talked to you about vice president? Without breaking stride, he looked at me and said, hell no, why should I give a shit what you think? <laughs> and <laughs> uh, you know, we, we both kind of fell uh, down laughing. Uh, and then later, um, he said to me, I was, I thought it was really good. He kind of said, look, Stevens, let me give you some advice, man. When a guy's getting married, wait until he asks you what you think of the fiance before you tell him. It's like, that's smart. That's smart. So whenever I've been around, which is only really with Romney, I really stayed out of the vice presidential choice. You know, I mean, I think it's very personal. And I think it'll probably be the same with, uh, with who Biden picks. You know, it makes no sense to look back, but you could argue that Tom Ridge would have won Pennsylvania. There would have been no contested election in Florida uh, in 2000, and it, it could have been a different history. Before I let you go, I have to ask you about the last season. So Romney campaign ends. It's got to be a hard time for you. Time of soul searching. Would be for anybody. And then you embark on this final season of college football with your then 95-year-old father and your mother. Talk a little bit about that period and what you learned about yourself in that season. Yeah, you know, I was involved in presidential campaigns where he won, uh, which was nice, but I found it didn't really cause you to reflect much. You just kind of moved on to the next thing. And then when we lost... And, you know, I think Mitt Romney's a wonderful person. Um, I was never an Obama hater at all. I mean, I think we'd be much, much better off if President Obama was still president. Your mother had a, an Obama sticker on her car. Yes, my mother did, yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I felt a real sense of uh, failure that I really had let someone down who I deeply cared about. At the same time, my dad had turned 95. So, you know, you start asking questions like, what is really important in life? And, you know, I had somebody who probably had lived life in a very, on one very superficial level that sort of by box scores, was I winning or losing? And, you know, at a certain point that felt kind of hollow. So when I was growing up in Mississippi, uh, one of the ways my dad and I really bonded was going to college football games, particularly Ole Miss football games. And a lot of those were held in Jackson then, where I grew up, could walk to the stadium where they were. So I decided that my dad and I and my mom, which gave it a kind of driving Miss Daisy quality, would go to all the Ole Miss football games for the 2013 season. Uh, so we did. And then I, I used that as a framework to write this book called The Last Season. Did you know you were writing the book while you were going through the season? I thought about it and I did it. I went to a couple of games and I realized that this really could work. You know, I've been very lucky in publishing. Uh, I was able to just sell the idea been really lucky in life in all aspects, but certainly in publishing. Um, it really was a reflection on loss and a, a reflection on the South and growing up. So it's sort of a meditation on loss is the way I thought of the book. And um, I'm really glad I did. You know, my dad lived uh, to just a couple of weeks shy of his 99th birthday, which is uh, about as good as you can get. Uh, my mom's still with us. She's 93. 
in many ways, you know, um, I'm glad my dad spared the Trump years. He was an FBI agent and uh, went to law school. Then FBI agents, were, they may still be, they were all lawyers or accountants then. Got the order from J. Edgar Hoover to round up Asian Americans for the internment camps when the war broke out. And he did it for a day and then he quit. He just couldn't do it. And he joined the Navy, spent three years in the South Pacific, 28 island landings. Like so many of those guys, he never talked about it much. And it wasn't until he was interviewed by the wonderful history project that the uh, New Orleans-based World War II Museum has that I really found out a lot about his history in the war. But, you know, he used to always tell me, you know, you can always say no. And I've thought about that a lot in the Trump era. Like, why is it that more people just haven't said no? And I look at these senators and congressmen. I mean, I get it. If you're working on the Hill and you have a family and your person supports Trump and jobs are hard to come by, maybe you have to suck it out. But all of these congressmen and senators are going to be fine if they weren't in office. And I just don't understand why they don't see how they're going to be remembered by history and not long-term history, near-term history. It's just baffling to me. I mean, say what you will about politicians. Most of them have pretty big egos, which doesn't bother me. I mean, a lot of great musicians and actors and writers, athletes have big egos. I don't get it, you know. I mean, if you take George Wallace, I mean, George Wallace actually did some good stuff as governor. He passed free textbooks. But nobody's remembered as the free textbook George Wallace guy. You were the George Wallace guy. He also lived to regret his racism. Yeah, Trump never will. I don't understand it. And I see as a betrayal. I mean, this is the people who were the heirs to the greatest generation. I mean, that whole generation like my father, like my uncle, who, you know, was shot six times uh, in, in Germany and never really recovered. Came back, became a civil rights lawyer, I think, in part largely because of the experience that he had recovering for two years. And that's their legacy they handed. I mean, courage isn't standing up to Donald Trump. Courage is getting out of the boat when the guy in front of you got shot. And they've just squandered that to me. And I, I think it's a deep betrayal. I know these people, a lot of them. I don't understand it. I think they're good people. I think they'd stop on the side of the road and help you in a heartbeat. So I just don't really understand it. I've done a lot of reading about 1930s Germany since Trump. And it's just will never be a mystery to me. We say we can't talk about World War II, we can't talk about Germany and all of that because, you know, but I think we have to. And I think America's much stronger. Our system's much stronger. We're not going to end up like Germany. But one of the most powerful books I read in this whole process of writing, it was all a lie, is the memoir of Franz von Paffen, who was the German politician who really ushered Hitler in, that he wrote in 1953, which actually you can get on Kindle, believe it or not, the memoirs. And... Even in 1953, he's still trying to justify it, that you had to understand that the Bolsheviks were a greater threat. We, the aristocracy, thought that we could control Hitler, had that element that was unhappy in the country, not followed Hitler, they would have followed, they would have gone communist. Yeah, things got a little out of control, (laughs) but we had the best of intentions. I mean, I think that's how it's going to be for so many of these Republicans. Stuart Stevens, this has been an honor and a pleasure. Take care, man. Best of luck with the book. All right. Thank you now. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media. 
produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit osirispod.com. Thank you.